shouldn't we all apologize for something, even if it's a small thing, but even better if it's a really big, crappy thing you did? From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. The sense that many people have when they feel that they don't measure up is that God is judging them and that God has found them wanting. I think that there are many people in many other religions who might share some of this sense that if they have done something that disappointed themselves or their parents or anyone, that they've disappointed God in an even bigger way, perhaps an unforgivable way. I've known Latter-day Saints who have prayed for forgiveness for something and then never quite feel that they were forgiven, even though that's what the gospel promises. John Reese is a senior commentator and author of the popular column, Flunking Sainthood, sharing her personal experience with writing critical commentary on an aspect of her church's teaching. Reese stumbled into a strong backlash and an opportunity to rethink her opinion. Then she did what sometimes seems unthinkable in the public space. She apologized and reconsidered. Jana Reese spoke with Beliefs producer Jay Woodward to sort through the experience. Jana Reese, thank you for joining us on Beliefs. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm glad that you came along to talk to us because I kind of want to pick away at maybe a tender little spot. In... And won't that be fun? <laughs> I'm so excited. Well, I'm glad that you're excited. It's part of why I've come to you is that you have a willingness to discuss something that can be kind of uncomfortable, and that is a very, a very public rethinking of some thoughts that you'd put out there. Why don't you just start by telling us what the first article was, what led you to this point of reflection on the curriculum and what what some of the emotions were, the stronger emotions were behind your criticisms. The background for this is that every year in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there is an assigned curriculum that is tied to a particular work of scripture. And for 2020, that is the Book of Mormon. So Mormons all over the world are studying the Book of Mormon this year, and there is a sort of prescribed reading for each week, and then you talk about it, and you might have lessons about it in church. And one of the things that happened is that the church pre-printed the curriculum, uh, the print book version of it, last fall, and it contained a racist teaching, which the church has actually disavowed. And it's like its own curriculum department had not gotten the memo that this is no longer taught, and so it just carried over a previous curriculum verbatim about this passage in the Book of Mormon about dark skin being a curse. And so the printed version of the manual has that in it. The church scrambled then to correct it digitally. So if you look in the curriculum online, you won't find it. It's not there. But the church had not apologized for the mistake or even issued instructions to teachers not to use the printed manual, which I felt was really an oversight. And it was really interesting in the weeks, the first few weeks of January, to be reading um, commentary from African-American Mormons and, and Mormons of color from around the world, how they felt about this and how disappointed they were, how um, how frustrating it was that the church had not made a, a public statement apologizing for the mistake or explaining 
that the doctrine had changed over time. It's kind of like the church just wanted to pretend this never happened. So that's the background for the post that I wrote in late January about the Book of Mormon curriculum. And so I hope that that's helpful context to describe my frame of mind. I'm not usually someone I would consider to be an angry columnist. You know, being a columnist, one of the issues is that you are expected to respond to the news and to have an opinion about it, this instapinion, maybe before you even have all the facts. So I waited several weeks, actually, before I wrote about this. The curriculum had been in place, uh, and this had been discussed for weeks before I wrote about it. And I thought that that would be a good enough cooling off period for me to kind of moderate my tone. Turns out, not so much. And I was not very happy. And I, I was sitting in the same chair that I'm sitting in now talking to you when I wrote this. And I can remember f how I felt when I was writing it, like getting on my high horse and, rah, 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 you know, it, uh, there, there is a certain righteous indignation that can take a person over. And so that was the frame of mind in which I wrote this. And, and I said, you know, someone had posted a, a picture on Twitter of herself uh, setting fire to that page of the curriculum. And I said, you know, actually, while we're at it, why don't we just set fire to the whole curriculum? Because it's flawed in many other ways as well. And then I started enumerating those ways. And then the last half of the post was looking at some of the really excellent resources that exist out there for people who want to study the Book of Mormon in more depth. I love the Book of Mormon, and I love reading about the Book of Mormon. Um, there's a lot there that is thoughtful and, you know, much better than the curriculum that the church has provided. Anyway, so I, I shut this off, and I think it published on a Friday, maybe a Thursday. It was, it was almost the weekend. And then did other things. I have other jobs, you know, besides being a columnist. And then when I looked back at the comments, I started to realize, wow, um, this was polarizing. What I wrote was very polarizing. And some of the comments that people made were constructive and helpful to me. And that's not always the case online, as I'm sure you can imagine, especially looking at some of the things that people say, you know, at two in the morning on Twitter. Maybe they're not their best selves. I don't know. Call me crazy. I'd I just don't think that they're at their best time at that moment. But some of these comments were helpful. Um, one of the things that has happened in the last couple of years is that my columns are now carried by the Salt Lake Tribune, and that has increased my readership significantly in the Mormon community, but it's also increased my hate mail, I would say, exponentially. And so it's, it's you know, I tend to weigh whether it's worth it to read some of the comments on the Salt Lake Tribune. And that time I did. And actually, some of them were very helpful, saying things like, well, I actually like this curriculum, and here's why. And I like the fact that all of us are studying the same thing all over the world, uh, that people are talking about it online, and I can get perspectives on this passage from people who live in very different circumstances than I do. I mean, there were actually a lot of great points that I had not considered as people were talking about this. Um, and a, a number of people said, look, I, I completely agree with you about the race issue. This is ridiculous that it got this far and that the church has not apologized, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's actually a lot of good it coming out of this curriculum. And we also, uh, in, the, in the church, the church has sort of been stepping back from having the church experience be the primary aspect of being Mormon. The, the, the buzzword now is 
home-centered and church-supported, meaning that religion is primarily going to be taking place in your home and you're teaching your children rather than having it take place at church and being told by the church, you know, here's what you should think, here's what you should do. So that's a positive step, you know, and people were pointing that out to me too. And so I, I took the weekend and I was reading these comments and thinking about it. And that Sunday I went to church and one of my friends was speaking and the, the talk he gave was about personal responsibility. And it was, I, I, I don't know, an evangelical Christian would say it was very convicting, you know. I mean, he, he was not writing this talk to speak in any way to my situation. It wasn't like one of those uh, things where someone is praying at you that you're going to change your behavior. Uh, it wasn't personal to me at all, but it hit me in a very personal way because I realized I was wrong about what I said, or at least some of what I said, and I need to apologize, and I need to do it publicly, and that's going to sting. Um, it's always hard to admit when you were wrong about something. It's particularly hard when you are someone who has a public voice, even in my really small way. I mean, my audience is primarily Latter-day Saints in the United States. We are one and a half percent of the population, okay? So when something goes viral in the Mormon community, it's not even a blip on the radar in the, the wider world, just to put things in perspective. But in that tiny world that I inhabit, I am a public figure, and that's a responsibility. And so I felt like, okay, first thing Monday morning, I need to sit down at my computer and I need to eat some crow in a big way. At this point, you have to make a decision whether or not you're going to embrace the fullness of an error or a perceived error or the criticism that you've got, or you're going to decide that there is enough virtue in the criticism that you want to stand by it. And speaking of virtues, there, there is, in these circumstances, some virtue in your anger and in your, in your frustration with what is very wrong thinking about some, you know, some, some racist aspects of, of, the, of the teachings, right? Right. And so how do you separate out the sort of righteous indignation that you feel about injustice? Because that's real, and it's happening, and it's part of our history, and we need to acknowledge it, we need to apologize for it as a people, and move forward. The church instead just wants to move forward, you know, without acknowledging that it exists or has existed. And that doesn't cut it. You know, racial reconciliation is not about pretending that racism never existed in the first place. Um, mm. However, we're also inhabiting a time and place right now where we are increasingly polarized into our own tiny communities of people who agree with us about everything. And the more we don't apologize when we're wrong and the more that we double down and the more that we insist in everything that comes out of our mouths being correct, we are contributing to that culture in which other people cannot or will not apologize and no one is willing to compromise. And that's not a culture that I want to embrace. I, I would much rather think about eating the crow and trying to contribute to what we would consider to be the common good. I hope that we still have a version of the common good in our vocabulary in this country. I understand your point about the polarization, but this polarization feels more difficult to back out from because they are so deeply connected to very, very fundamental yes. values that people Well, hold. okay, this is kind of a complicated answer, but a couple of years ago, 
I had a game changer reading experience of this book by Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind. And his basic argument in The Righteous Mind is that we have five or possibly six, he sort of revises his theory, but we have these five basic uh, foundations of morality, including purity, um, that we, we want the world to be uncontaminated. That's one of them. Um, justice is another. And his argument is that through his research, he's a behavioral psychologist, liberals consistently have one of those values, and they have it in spades, which is justice. And then conservatives have a version mm. of all of them. So conservatives also have the purity culture, and they also have response to authority. So um, conservatives are more likely to think that society runs efficiently and better if someone has a clear chain of command and other people recognize that not everyone is in charge, et cetera. And I found that book to be mm -hmm. tremendously helpful because it, it helped me to identify some patterns that I had seen in the people around me and in my own life uh, in dealing. I, I feel that I'm fairly moderate. I mean, as a Mormon, I'm wildly progressive. And, you know, people think that I'm liberal going to hell in a handbasket, hand commie, whatever. But that's because Mormon culture is so conservative. In terms of mm -hmm. America, especially historically, I'm right in the middle. And that's not always a very comfortable place to be. Um, so I can see some of these moral foundations around me. And I was thinking in particular of an experience I had a number of years ago when the movie Ender's Game came out. You know, Orson Scott Card wrote this science fiction novel way sure. back in the day, and it was not made into a movie for a long time, but I don't know if it was 2009, 2010, or something like that. And I was unfriended by several people because of something that I wrote about Ender's Game. And what had happened was that the, uh, there was a boycott within the LGBT community because Orson Scott Card had a very strong and I would say virulent anti-homosexuality writings in his, in his past that he had never recanted. And I have been known in Mormon circles as a pretty strong LGBT ally. And so I think people were looking for me to say, yes, this boycott is a great idea. And instead I said, you know, this isn't going to to solve the problem that you're wanting it to resolve. He's already been paid. So if you don't go see this movie, the only people that you're hurting are the people who have contributed to this movie, including a lot of people in the LGBT community who acted in it and produced it and, you know, did sound editing and all of this other stuff, mm -hmm. you know. It's much more it's much more complicated than just thinking you're going to publish and punish an author. And that was not a popular opinion among followers that, you know, I had on Facebook on the left. And several people unfriended me because of this and said, you know, that I was betraying the LGBT community. It was fascinating because to me that just seemed like uh, this was a very pragmatic response. Like this author is not going to be punished in the way that you think this author is going to be punished if you boycott this film. So... This is all, all a long way of saying that your point about how we see this in, in sort of the woke community as well as among very conservative Americans, that sense of righteous indignation, that sense that there is no other point of view, you know, that there cannot possibly exist 
a morality on the other side of what I feel about this issue. Unfortunately, that has become very common. It seems like this is a conversation that is is old as well. There has always been a balance between the art and the artist and the practices of the person. You know, we can look a little bit further back to see Woody Allen, to use your you know, movie metaphor, we can look further back than that to see Roman Polanski. We can look further back than that to see Thomas Jefferson and and the contradictions. So I guess the problem that we are wrestling with currently is about how a centrist or, or conciliatory attitude towards these things will lead you to be perceived as endorsing some sort of yeah. other opinion that you don't necessarily. Yeah. And so how do you inhabit that space where you stand for what you believe in, but you are also, you know, so you're not a pushover, but you're also listening and trying to take the arguments that are valid arguments from both sides and have those inform your opinion. Um, I, that's the person that I want to be. You know, I don't want to be the person who is putting my fingers in my ears and thinking that I'm right all the time. How am I ever going to grow, right? How am I ever going to become better or different if I am only listening to myself? So that takes us back to the idea of being in a church itself. And one of the things that when I asked you about this topic, about you know what we would talk about if we were going to start to unpack this, and you talked about a parallel problem that I'm sure you and many other people face, which is the idea of perfectionism and purity in religion and how to treat those things, not just among society, but as a personal matter of faith and the faith tradition that you belong to, that there may be many ways that the church failed in respect of a self-awareness and they failed to retract these passages and they failed to apologize for them and for not retracting them because it's very easy to get through a PR problem if you don't acknowledge it these days. But what does that mean for someone like you who has to practice in a different way than the body of the church has to practice and wrestle with the idea of the perfectionism of a religion? Great question. I can only speak from the perspective of being in my church. So like I said, I'm a Mormon and we have been a people that have pretty consistently emphasized certain behavioral expectations. So, you know, I don't drink. I don't even drink coffee. It's great that we have our health code. It's great that we have certain expectations about our family relationships and, you know, having Monday, Monday evening for family home evening, for example, which, by the way, I should just say I don't practice consistently. So, you know, I'm the only Mormon in my family. <laughs> um, but the problem arises when that becomes two things. When, first of all, it becomes a source of pride and feeling like you are better than other people, which I think happens in my church. And the second is when it becomes a source of negation and, you know, self, uh, a sense of self-worth is threatened because you feel that you're never going to measure up. And my church has really high expectations of people. And honestly, I don't think I've yet met a woman in my church who feels like she's doing everything she's supposed to be doing. It's just impossible, right? Mm. And so perfectionism, it probably mm -hmm. also exists for Mormon men, particularly. Um, I've heard interesting stories through my research about how they feel when they're on a mission and they have these 
tremendous expectations on their shoulders of, of going out to evangelize and have spiritual experiences and kind of be superheroes and all of these things. And what happens if you go on your mission and actually you don't baptize a single person in two years? You know, how do you feel about that having worked so hard? Mm. So I'm not saying that perfectionism doesn't affect men or women too who go on missions, but I think that there is a certain kind of toxic perfectionism that particularly pertains to how gender is presented in my church. And so I have, uh, I've gotten on my soapbox many a time to say this is something that we need to talk about. It's not healthy. And even some of the most orthodox and I think satisfied, happy Latter-day Saint women that I talk to also have this component where they feel like they are not measuring up and they're not good enough mothers or they're not, um, not doing enough all the time, which is a lot to bear. That's a lot to carry. It does sound like it, it's an enormous burden, but there's a there's another part to this as well, and it's the spiritual part, the part between the human and the divine inside this perfectionism, not just with the body of the church, but with God. Is that a different struggle? Does that take a different shape? It's definitely related, and the sense that many people have when they feel that they don't measure up is that God is judging them and that God has found them wanting. Um, that That's a lot to carry as well. I think that there are many pe- people in many other religions who might share some of this sense that if they have done something that disappointed themselves or their parents or anyone, that they've disappointed God in an even bigger way, perhaps an unforgivable way, I've known Latter-day Saints who have prayed for forgiveness for something and then never quite feel that they were forgiven, even though that's what the gospel promises, is that if you repent, then you are forgiven and you can move forward and that the, the atonement of Christ is you know, operative in your life and can be an enabling power for you. But for people who are living under to- toxic perfectionism, I think that's very hard to believe So to take us back to your second article, your second article uh, publishes a few days after the first to say, I want to apologize. There was some, there was some language that you didn't want to stand behind, but you wanted to thread the needle of apologizing for one part, but standing by another part. How was that for you? <laughs> How was that? Well, okay, it was it was unpleasant to have to write. It's always unpleasant to apologize, right? Who likes to do that? I was particularly apologizing for this language that I put uh, of dumpster fire. I said that the curriculum problem with um, the racist language being retained and then the church's failure to apologize for that was a dumpster fire. And I think that that is appropriate for that particular debacle. But I don't think that I should have said that the entire curriculum was a dumpster fire, you know, which I really basically said. That was unfortunate. At the time, you know, I was so angry when I wrote that first one that at the time I thought dumpster fire was less incendiary than literally incendiary than the other thing that I was thinking of, which I probably can't say on the air, but it begins with cluster and it ends with something that ends in K. So that's the word that I was trying not to use. So in you know in that context, dumpster fire seemed pretty moderate, but who knows? 
another thing that has happened since I wrote both of these posts is that there are some people in my ward, which is a congregation, that's how Mormons call it, a congregation, some people in my ward that have put together a scripture study group. And so I've been twice to this, and it's great. So we've been taking the come follow me curriculum as sort of a jumping off place. Like here are the passages that we're supposed to be talking about. What do you all think? What questions do you have? What are the problems? That is so much more enriching to me than the, the curriculum itself. The curriculum itself, in addition to the you know racism problem that we identified before, also has this sort of perpetual self-congratulatory tone. Like there are leading questions that are, you know, really not questions that are things like, um, aren't you glad to have the gospel in your life? You know, uh, well, yes, I am. Yes. Funny you should mention it. Let's just congratulate ourselves one more time. There's a lot of kind of us and them thinking that's presented in the curriculum. There's a lot of emphasis on obeying the prophet, following your church leaders. Um, I don't find any of that to be particularly helpful, but these discussion groups meetings have been great because people are very real. You know, at church, maybe sometimes you have a facade that you put on when you're you're going to church. The old story about, the, or the old aphorism about the, um, the church not being a country club, but rather a hospital for the sick. My church hasn't really gotten that memo, you know, that this is actually where people are supposed to go and bring their whole selves and be imperfect and just um, expect that there will be grace there, not only from God, but from the community. Uh, I do feel that, though, in this small group that has been discussing, because people are really talking about their lives and about how the scriptures intersect in interesting ways with things that have happened to them. I love that. So I want to ask... The apology that you put out there, you know, really embracing the feedback that you got, the criticisms, and acknowledging that it caused pain that was not only distracting to the point that you wanted to make, but also, you know, distressed some people. Did you find that your apology did what it was hoping to do in settling some tensions and defusing some situation? Did you give any feedback that that was successful? I saw some on Twitter, and that was great. Um, but honestly, I tried to just say what I needed to say and then get out of there and work on my post for the next day. You know, like, let's close this chapter. I I apologized. I said what I felt that I I had to say in order to be a person of integrity. But I also don't have that sort of self-flagellation that's going to make me read every single comment. And I've been blogging for 10 years or being a columnist for 10 years now. And with comments, you you develop a thicker and thicker skin over time. The challenge is to allow yourself to read enough of them that if there are genuinely helpful, constructive, critical comments, that you're open to those. But in order to get to those, honestly, you have to wade through a lot of ridiculous – oh, um, I yeah, don't even get me started. So sometimes it's not worth the time. And that was a Monday that I wrote the second post. Mondays are my busiest day. I wrote the post, and I had a lot of other work to do. So, yeah, I'm not a perfect person. Jana, thank you for walking through that with us. 
It is. Appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Shouldn't we all apologize for something, you know, every day? Even if it's I would a like small to. thing, but even better if it's a really big, crappy thing you did. Well, I guarantee you by noon today, I will have found something that I need to apologize for. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it hasn't been anything you've said in this conversation, if that's any consolation to you, Jonathan. <laughs> you've been fine. <laughs> Thank you, Jana. appreciate it. Absolutely. How to be uncomfortable, self-reflection in faith. Our guest was Jonna Reese, an editor, author, and senior columnist at Religion News Service. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer and host today with production assistance from Jonathan Smith. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.